Hello everyone, Louise Poynton here. A year ago, I created and launched this podcast, The David Cassidy Connections. My guests have come from all over the world, not just from David's huge army of fans, both male and female, but from musicians, producers, actors, broadcasters, journalists, authors and historians who all have a connection with David. As this is our first birthday, today I have selected some of the highlights from the past 12 months from my varied and interesting guests who have shared their memories, anecdotes of time spent with David, his impact on their lives and what he means to them. We have looked at the psychology of idolatry, David's music, what it felt like to meet him, concert experiences, heard teenage diary entries, and also songs influenced by David, written and performed by his fans. I am so thankful to all of my guests for the time they've spent with me. The guest list ranges from Bruce Kimmel and Richie Furey to John Baylor, Brian Forster, Felix Cavallari to Bobby Rydell. Remember, you can download, share, leave reviews on your preferred podcast platform because that helps people find us. And it's also been so wonderful to see the podcast chart on the Apple Podcasts, reaching number one in New Zealand, being placed in the top five in South Africa, across Europe, in the United States, the UK, and in top 20 positions in other countries across the world. So for the next two hours, sit back and remember, or if you're listening for the first time, You can find the complete episodes on your preferred podcast platform. When I reached out to fans inviting you to share memories for my book, Cherish David Cassidy, A Legacy of Love, I was overwhelmed at the response. In this compilation, you will hear from fans like Clea Malonis, who won a competition to meet David in Hollywood, and singer-songwriter Lee Ashton, whose career was influenced by David, and he plays as one of his own compositions. Coming up, you will hear from Sally Newman, who remembers the day she met David when she was just 14. But first, lifelong fan Barbara Badushi reads extracts from her diary. This is a reading from my diary dated March 11, 1972. It was the day of the Madison Square Garden concert in New York City. Dear Diary, David Cassidy is the sexiest dancer I've ever seen. There was a 3D screen which showed close-ups of every part of his body in motion, especially the back and front ends. I loved every minute of it and hoping to go to the next concert coming up in June. One of the best parts was when his jumpsuit fell apart as he politely turned his back to the audience to tie himself up. We all went insane. The next excerpt is from the following day, March 12th. Dear Diary, I woke up this morning and felt as if it were all a dream. The trip into New York City and David live on stage, shaking his mode of front and back. He was so unbelievable and so damn sexy. I was in a crying, screaming state of shock. Now it's the day after, and I'm still crying because I'm missing him. I had just turned 14 years old when David Cassidy was set to come to Bakersfield for the opening of our newest department store. When I heard on the radio that he was going to be here, 
I remember running through the house. It was early in the morning and screaming to my mother that, oh my gosh, David Cassidy is coming to town. And of course, she just didn't even know what to think of my um, excitement because she barely knew who he was anyway. But I can't begin to really put into words what a fantastic experience it was, especially for a 14-year-old girl to meet her idol, her crush. He was so big. I mean, the Partridge family had just started, but he was already really big. And what an opportunity to come to Bakersfield to do this. And I, I had made started to make a scrapbook of him. And I thought, well, I'll take it and he can sign it. Little did I know that I would be the only girl that got a kiss on the cheek but I mean, it was the most ultra surreal experience, of course, up until then in my life. And I've treasured it ever since. It honestly is one of the best days of my life. I will never forget it. It was magical. My name is Peter Ackerman, and I live in Lodi, California. And I'm originally from Southern California in what's known as the San Fernando Valley in the Studio City and Sherman Oaks area. I was born into a Hollywood TV family. My father is executive producer Harry Ackerman, uh, who was the executive producer of Bewitched and The Flying Nun and Gidget and Dennis the Menace and all those family type shows. My mother is the actress Eleanor Donahue, who was known for a TV series in the late 1950s called Father Knows Best, where she played the oldest daughter. Uh, she also was Andy's Andy Griffith's girlfriend on the first season of The Andy Griffith Show, and uh, so much more. I do have a David Cassidy memory. There was a period in my dad's life where he was transitioning out uh, of the classic TV work that he was so known for, However, his contract with Screen Gems and basically ABC Television was not quite up, and I think they let it run out by bringing him on as a show advisor for various productions that he did not have anything to do with creatively, but was an advisor for. And one of those shows was The Partridge Family. And when I used to go visit my dad, I was probably about 11 or 12 uh, during the time he worked at Paramount Studios. On this particular visit to Paramount Studios, uh, I was on the set with my friend Philip Maple. And for whatever reason, my dad had business and he would just kind of drop us off to a set and tell us where to meet him later. And so we were just hanging out on the Partridge family set. And um, before before leaving us, he uh, walked me and Philip over to the set, sorry, a set piece where David Cassidy was sitting. Uh, by himself and introduced me to David and um, David was very kind and uh, my dad said see you boys later and he left and uh, David asked our names again and asked a little bit about us and why we were there and he um, he invited us to sit on the couch with him and uh, we just chatted and he had a, he, his guitar with him and he was strumming on his guitar and he said um uh, this is a song that I'm working on that I'm writing. And he started strumming and singing. And um, soon he was called to set uh, to the other set piece where they were filming. He was 
taking a break while they were doing some lighting setup or something. And so he had to leave us. Um, and then Philip and I went about our way and the rest of our day. But I've never forgotten that. Having known and met uh, lots of Hollywood stars in my life uh, and having worked in the industry myself, I recognize that there are all kinds of people and some people don't want to be bothered and some people want to be friendly. And whether David was friendly because that's who he was or maybe he was friendly because I had the connection to my dad, he was still friendly. He didn't have to give any time to a couple of school kids in sixth or seventh grade hanging on the set, um, but he did. And um, I wish with uh, those many regrets that we have in our lives, I wish I recognized the song that he was working on. Who knows? Maybe it got written. Maybe it didn't. Um, maybe he tossed it. I don't know. But um, that's my David Cassidy memory. And I've always thus been a fan of his. Um, but I've always had that fond memory of David Cassidy being, as I call it in the industry, one of the nice ones. My name is Liz Tiley and I live in the United Kingdom. David Cassidy, just saying his name still makes me swoon. He had it all, his smile, his voice, so handsome and so talented. Like millions of other teenage girls, he was my first love. With opportunities over the years to see him in concert and even meet him, we still cherished him decades later. I am so thankful to have such wonderful memories. They will stay with me forever. Hi Louise, this is Lee Ashton from South Africa speaking to you about how David helped me with my singing technique at 19 when I was first starting out in the music industry. I would send tapes into record companies singing along with various artists from the Beatles, the Bee Gees, um, in my case especially David. On the strength of that I was given a three-year recording contract. What I would do was I would uh, take a mic and plug it into one channel um, of a recording uh, system, put on a record and sing along with the various artists. On the playback, what you would hear is me in one speaker and the other artist in the other speaker. And I would try and get as close to sounding like what they did as possible. Uh, I sent this into David Gresham Productions. Um, his talent scout heard it and liked it, and I was given a three-year recording contract on the strength of that. Now, later on, basically what happened was I got so involved with singing David's songs that I recorded every single one of his albums. Uh, Cherish, Rock Me Baby, Dreams of Nothing More Than Wishes, The High They Climb. Uh, and I found that singing along with the songs like I did with the recording technique, I learned a lot uh, in terms of uh, range and everything there is to know about singing. Uh, so David really helped me a lot. And then from there, I progressed further as I got older and, and changed styles. Um, when it comes to my own songs, uh, like my ballads, especially Tanya, Day After Day, uh, and Mother, I always use the softer voice, the sort of David-style uh, technique, because I find it sounds a lot nicer than um, any other style. So with Mother, I remember waking up on Mother's Day 1983, realizing I didn't have a present, sat down, started writing Mother, and immediately I realized that the voice I must use on Mother would be the softer voice. Uh, and it worked. It went down well. 
Sue McConnell here from Melbourne, Australia. My love for David started my early teens in Auckland, New Zealand. While a lot of those teenage years are a blur due to what was going on at home, I do remember my mother reading from the newspaper one night saying, your idol is coming to New Zealand on my birthday, February 26, 1974 at Eden Park, a still well-known sports ground. You can imagine my excitement. I was already babysitting for friends of my parents, so I saved up my money ready for the purchase of the ticket. I think it was $4 back then. Shortly before the concert, it was announced that there would be a change of venue, two concerts at the Auckland Town Hall, so my best friend and I were allowed to go into the city to exchange our tickets. We had the best seats in the first balcony overlooking the stage. Oh, what a night. Again, some of it is a blur due to our excitement of seeing David so close, but I do remember his white suit and then later the colourful overalls. Then all too soon it was over. Our chanting, we want David, was to no avail. And I remember crying my eyes out. This is the last time I would see or hear David for a very long time. Many years later, in the mid-1990s, I was now living in Australia and married with two boys of my own, one named Matthew and the other named David, knowing from a young age that if I ever had a son, I would name him David after my first love. 
I never forgot David, so I put an advert in the paper looking for other fans. I met my now good friend Jessica and the love started all over again. By this time, David was performing at Blood Brothers on Broadway. But he returned to Australia in 2002 and I got my cherished moment meeting him at Melbourne Airport. He was so lovely and oh, that beautiful smile. David will always have a very special place in my heart because despite having his own difficulties, he always showed a genuine love and care for his fans. I'm Alison Haynes from the United Kingdom. It still can be quite difficult to really get across to people, I think, that don't or haven't experienced um, this, how it felt at the time. Um, and bearing in mind, when I first saw David, and obviously that was coming onto our screens as in the Partridge family, the first time I ever saw that, I was only six years old, so I wasn't, it was very innocent. I wasn't at an age when I was, you know, about to actually have a crush on anybody. So this was something a little bit different. And I just remember this sort of deeply beautiful person suddenly appeared on the screen. And I say deeply beautiful because it wasn't something that was superficial about him for me at the time. It was, it was almost ethereal, uh, to be honest. And I, I just remember there was, um, it was like my heart opened and I had this, oh, moment. Um, and I just think of that moment. I loved him. I absolutely loved him. I didn't think, gosh, he's gorgeous. I say I was six years old. I just loved him. And now, obviously, in my 50s, I look back and I've obviously maintained a, a connection to him all these years. And I think, yes, I really did love him. And I think that is what, having spoken to other people, other fans or, you know, over the years, we've all sort of agreed the same thing. It was something very, very special. It was almost otherworldly, I think, at the time. And I just remember being glued to the TV screen. It, it just mesmerised. I think, similar to a lot of people, my childhood wasn't that great at times. And I remember he became sort of in my head, if you like, a little bit of a safe place um, as someone that I always thought, you know, I imagined would be very supportive and kind and hold my hand and put his arm around me. And that was as far as it went, really. Um, I think it was about 2011 or 2012, I did actually manage to go and see him um, when he came across to the UK. And I was so excited about going. And somebody said to me, oh, you know, I don't know why he's so excited. He's not going to look like he used to. And I said, but it's not about that. It's nothing to do with the way he looked for me personally. Obviously, that's a, a beautiful aspect of it. But it was, I just remember going to that concert and being at the front row and just staring up at him. And I felt the same way then as I did when I first saw him when I was six years old. Something very deep, um, something deeper to me than anything superficial. And I think when he opened my heart, which sounds a bit sort of uh, dramatic, um, he stayed there. He stayed there for all those years. Hi, my name is Joanne and I'm from Brooklyn, New York in the US. I first remember seeing David in a teen magazine and then seeing him on TV as Keith. For me, it was his eyes and his smile that first drew me in. I couldn't take my eyes off him. He seemed very sweet and a nice sense of humor. And then I heard him sing and I was just drawn in by his voice. He was so full of life. He was explosive. The way he emphasized every lyric and put all his emotion into every song. He, he seemed to enjoy it and he felt it and he just took us in. I, I, he took us on a journey and you had to listen to him. I was so honored to uh, see him many times throughout the years. Uh, the first time was as a teenager, 14 years old, it being such a thrill of so much excitement that he filled Madison Square Garden in New York in 1972 with 21,000 people. Then I went to see him in um, Westbury, which was a uh, meet and greet. So I got to go backstage and meet him and take a photo with him. 
And um, that was just just a thrill, just to see him up close and uh, be that close to him. It leaves you speechless. Hi, I'm Robin from California. When I think of David Cassidy, I put myself back many years before as a 15-year-old girl, seeing him on the Partridge family the first time. Not only was I taken with the whole family concept of the show, I felt instantly in love with David. Not only was he beautiful, but he was so talented. And the musical ability that David had really touched my heart because with every song that he sang, I could feel the raw emotion behind it. There will never be another man that made me escape the troubledness that I had growing up with being a product of parents that were alcoholics. I would find solace in music by listening to him sing. There isn't a day that I don't think about him and miss him and the countless joy that he brought to me and so many of my family and friends. It was a long corridor where the door was and I had to walk up this long corridor and then we were facing these doors into the studio, these double doors. So there was like a, a sitting area, like um, a settee or the one where we had the photos done. We saw him coming up and he was just striding up very sort of casually and uh, I think he said, oh, look, we've got an audience or something. I can't exactly remember because it was still a bit far away. And I, I just looked and I thought, oh, my God, it's him. And then I kind of looked away again. It was like smiling. And at the same time, I could feel these sort of butterflies and, and stuff and, and all excitement. But at the same time, I just wanted to get away. I thought, this is not happening. I'm not ready to meet him. And I thought, do I look okay? You know, like you normally do. Do I look all right? You know what I mean? And uh, and then they reached us and we just stood up. And he said, come on, uh, let's just push the door open. Let's come into the studio. And we just went into the studio. And then he was talking to some of the technical, only a couple of other people in there. Um, uh, about the music and basically we were just waiting and then we uh, after he was talking to people and fiddling about with some of the keyboards and that we just kept looking at him but we, it was so natural we, we felt as if part of the crew if you know what I mean normally I mean obviously when I was young I thought he was beautiful he was a beautiful person but when you're young in the 70s, that's the, that's the look you wanted your boyfriend to look like. Hi, I'm Yasmin. I'm originally from the Bronx, but now I live in Los Angeles for the past 38 years. Oh, what can I say about David Cassidy? He was my first love. He has affected me um, in so many ways, changed my life. I am who I am because of him. He's the reason why I live in Los Angeles, because at 13, I came out here from the Bronx and I met him. I was arrested. I uh, was released, but I was, and it's not a record. Anyway, um, I saw him in concert four times, once in 71, twice in 72, and the last time was in March at the Saban Theater in 2015. I also saw him in Blood Brothers twice, once in New York City and once in Los Angeles. 
And I saw him in Las Vegas, which is probably my best memory because I made the plans through one of the fan clubs and I had no idea, but he had actually um, paid for the tickets, got me seated in the right place in the theater, and I was taken, escorted to his dressing room afterwards and took pictures with him. And it is in the Cherish book, the most wonderful day of my life, I have to say. Uh, hi, my name is Michael Lefner from Medford, Oregon in the USA. Like I said in the book Cherish, uh, I grew up in a remote part of western Alaska with limited news outlets to the outside world at the time. This was in 1968. So even after graduating from high school in 1972, I had still never heard of David Cassidy or the Partridge family until I went to college in the lower 48. After watching my first episodes of the Partridge family in 1976. My favorite Partridge Family albums are Sound Magazine and Bulletin Board, but the album Christmas Card has special memories. At college, sometimes I would just drive around so I could keep listening to that eight-track tape. David's singing of White Christmas and Frosty the Snowman is absolutely beautiful. Another favorite memory that stands out was watching David in the wonderful police story TV movie called A Chance to Live in 1979. I've always remembered staying home to watch the movie while my parents and brother went out to a local county fair. I didn't have a chance to see the movie again until almost 40 years later. Since then, I've become a huge David Cassidy and Partridge Family collector as well. I finally got to see him in concert at the Seven Feathers Casino in Canyonville, Oregon in 2008. My wife and daughter were there as well, and it was a thrill of a lifetime. That's one memory I shall cherish forever, pun intended. He was so gifted with a beautiful singing voice and so much natural talent. I've always admired that. I'm Dr. Haley Gino McConnell and I'm from Niagara Falls, Ontario, Canada. Like most David Cassidy admirers, I found him completely dreamy and utterly charming. I was enchanted by his silky, youthful, breathy, soulful voice that at once seemed quite young, but also possessed a depth and an intimacy that you wouldn't have expected from somebody who began his recording artist career so young. And like most of his admirers, I became a fan starting in my teenage years. I was 14 years old when I discovered David Cassidy, and like many of his fans, have remained a fan to this day. But unlike most of his fans, I was born in 1986. I'm 34 years old, and I became a David Cassidy fan in the year 2000. I'm a new millennium fan, if you will, or a next generation fan. And what was interesting for me about having that experience is that I felt like I got to claim him as my own. I didn't have a lot of girlfriends to compete with uh, for posters and for claiming my space as the number one David Cassidy fan. And this was a fortunate experience for me because I had always felt a little bit different. I think we all do. I think growing up, everybody has that sense of there's just something about me that doesn't quite fit. And we're all looking for that right fit or that piece of ourselves, that thing we can claim to as part of our identity. 
And for me, that was David Cassidy. He was sort of a shorthand for my offbeat identity. It was unusual to be a fan at the time that I was. And so I really took to it and uh, turned that turned that love and admiration um, into, into something personal. Becoming a fan of David Cassidy, listening to his music, watching his performances, for me was kind of waking up to a new way of perceiving the world. And when I was made aware of David Cassidy, something clicked. It was like I had an immediate affinity for this individual, and even for the culture of which he helped form a part. And so I think when I look back on all the enrichment that David Cassidy has provided for my life, it goes much deeper than just being entertained. Yes, of course, I still enjoy listening to his music. Yes, of course, uh, I still, you know, get starry-eyed when I see a picture of him uh, and think back on the life that he lived and the person that he was. But beyond that, I'm grateful for David Cassidy representing a conduit to so many other things, a conduit to feeling like it was okay to like something that was different than the norm. Once I found David Cassidy, and once I found my way into that world and into that cultural space, I knew it felt better to feel satisfied and inspired than it did to pretend to go along with the masses. And that's a really important lesson to learn as an adolescent and as a teenager. For all of those experiences, for all of that goodness and self-worth and self-identity that David Cassidy helped to foster in my life, I can only say thank you and express my continued gratitude for, for his life, for his career, and for everything that he represented to me. In this next extract, my guest is Felix Cavallari. David recorded two of his songs, How Can I Be Sure and Lonely Too Long. He talks here about how he wrote How Can I Be Sure, and then you will hear from singer Tony Hadley. In conversation with broadcaster Alex Dyke, they shared their memories of the 1970s. Tony echoes Felix's thoughts on how difficult a song, How Can I Be Sure, is to sing. Would you have ever liked to have produced him? Well, I love producing, so I have to say yes. You know, I think that's a that's that's part of our our uh, uh, you know so-called uh, musical uh, career that's fun, because uh, you know when you do your own music, there's there's a certain type of different thing you know that you you have to pay attention to, uh, but when you do someone else, now you have to pay attention to their their wants and wishes and their talents and. So it, it brings out a lot more in you, you know, than you than you have just yourself. I mean, talking to myself, get, I get a little bored, you know. <laughs> so talking to someone else is always a joy, you know. Yeah. You know, he really liked to do our songs and things, you know. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I, I feel like I know him a little bit. I knew him a little bit, you know. Did, yes. did you like his interpretation of, of your music? Well, yeah, you know, it's it's kind of like a real kind of like a, a treat to have someone take up, you know, your song and, and do it. Uh, but I'm interested now as to how you wrote How Can I Be Sure? How did that song evolve? And how do you compose a song? Do you come up with an idea? Do you come up with the lyrics? Do you come up with the melody? There was a lady in my life at that time. I, I, I found out years later that they, they have this thing here. It called a muse. <laughs> I had a muse. I had met. I, I fell in love with this young girl, because I was a young guy. But she was, you know, and 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 I was so inspired from that joy to write uh, love songs. 
And uh, lo and behold, I started, they started coming out like, you know, right and left. I've been lonely too long was first. And then, uh, you know, grooving on a Sunday afternoon, which is about us being together on the, on the weekend because we're working as musicians. And so everything came out, girl like you. And, and then all of a sudden, something changed. And we were engaged. And then something just said, I'm not so sure of this. I don't think this is, I, I, I kind of woke up from this dream that I was, this lovely dream that I was having. I said, what, what am I doing? You know, I'm too young to be married, number one. Number two, the spell broke. How can I be sure? Well, so, um, you know, I had a writing partner in those days, Eddie. Right. But I, I, I would write the song, and basically what I would do is I would start with music, because the music really came very easily to me. And then I would do kind of like what McCartney used to say about that song, The Scrambled Eggs, you know, which became Yesterday. You know, you start singing something and you don't know where it's going. You don't know where it's going. You don't know where it's going. And then after you've done this two or three times with the same melody and the same music, sometimes a, a title will come into your head. Something like, oh, we could talk about this. Oh, we could talk about this. Well, in my case, how can I be sure? I was really talking a little bit more about the relationship, but we felt we should expand it, you know, because of the kind of like double entendre, you know. So when 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 I gave it to to Ed, because I I would write I would write more serious lyrics, uh, and 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 he was more kind of like a little flowery, and so he you know he was more attuned to the kind of like genre that we we're attracting, and that's why when David did it, uh, I was really happy because. You know, it, it got a new audience. It's a great thing, I feel, when somebody feels inclined to, to redo something that you did. I think it's a quite, quite a, a nice thing. It's a very difficult song to sing. Do you agree with well, that? Well, yeah, it, the range of it is what it is. You know, it, it'll push you to, uh, you know, your upper limits. You know, it's really interesting. Sometimes a different key will make a big difference in the way that song uh, uh, kind of uh, projects. Where do you rate David's version of how, how Can I Be Sure? You know, the public really decides what's really good or bad. I mean, it's not up to us to decide what's good and bad because, you know, uh, after all, uh, unless, you know, like the publicity campaign is just overwhelming, they either like it or they don't like it. Yeah. That's how I feel. If they like it, it's good. As a, a singer yourself, what is so special about David's voice? David, I think is what it is. You know, like uh, there's a sweetness in his voice that must have been part of his whole personality. You can, you can tell when somebody's sweet, you know, you can tell somebody's nice and they got a good heart and vice versa. Sometimes the speaking voice uh, will, will betray you, you know, like seriously, when, when, when you sing, you go to a little different conscious level of your being. And it's a, most cases a lot deeper than you know the present tense that we're in you know when we speak but you can hear you know his his sweetness is the only word i can remember because he was a sweet guy you know i mean you know when you saw him i i don't really think that his uh, acting was too far away from what he where he was really at i think that's what the kind of guy he was and and you know when the people love you they love you. You know, everyone wanted a David Cassidy haircut as well because he had that really kind of cool hair. And he just had the best smile. He was just, and they used to sing their songs 
And he, what I loved about David Cassidy was his voice. What a voice. I thought it was a fantastic sounding voice, the tone of it and everything else. So I became a sort of David Cassidy fan. Were you a bit of a closet fan, though? Were you worried to tell people at school that you well, liked him? I told more of the girls than I did the boys. Because mm. <laughs> the girls, if you were David, yeah, I love David Cassidy. You like David Cassidy? Yeah, I do. I really like David Cassidy. But he, I think he just had a really great voice. I mean, and he was, and the songs were good. That was the other thing, you know, sort of, you know, could it be forever? I mean, just beautiful. And he had that little sort of vibrato in his voice and, uh, yeah, the top, top artist. So he had the wrecking crew playing on those songs, which is, is great. If you've got the top uh, musicians, the top session musicians in yeah. California, that's going to help. They're good people writing the songs, a bit like the monkeys. I'm not a singer. I'm not a musician. What was so great about his voice? I know he's got a nice voice, but you being a singer could tell me why. Well, how can I be sure? How can I be sure? Which was a cover of a band. Rascals. The Rascals. Thank you very much. Alex, I knew you were going to get that one. And The Rascals. I did a cover of that on a swing album. I did a Passing Strangers. It's, a, it's the transition. The vocal transition is, is, is big. And it's quite a difficult song to sing. And when you hear uh, David Cassidy singing it, you realise how good a voice he had. And he really did. And he just... I, I just love the tone of his voice. I think he had a, a, you know, the whole thing about singing, okay, is not how many twiddles you can do, not how, how wonderfully you can sing, not how technical you, are, technical you are. It's when you put a record on, do you know who's singing the song? And a David Bowie record, as soon as you put that on the turntable, you knew it was him, just as you did with Mark Bowie and David Bowie and Brian Ferry. And that's, for me, is what makes a singer. Mm. Did you follow his career with much interest? So, you know, there was Daydreamer, there were, there were other numbers. I've got ones. the singles, I've got them. Yeah? And, I, I got, and, and the one I always loved, Storybook Love. It's a storybook love and it's all and it's all. I don't know that one. Uh, that's a brilliant song. It's a great, I mean, even the B-sides were good. I'll <laughs> meet you halfway. <laughs> Do you know I'll meet you halfway? I, I don't know that I'll one. I'll meet you halfway. It's no. better than no way. Oh, oh. I have to play that. In we'll a have moment. to get. We'll have to find that one. Don't yeah, we? but then in '75 he signs a deal with RCA and he does. Um, I write the songs. Has a big hit with that. Yeah, First yeah. person in Britain to have a big hit with it. But he does a brilliant version of the Beach Boys' "Darling," and he's backed up by the guys from the Turtles. Yeah. One of the most popular episodes featured John Baylor. John has worked with some of the biggest stars, including Michael Jackson, Barbara Streisand, Frank Sinatra, Andy Williams and Elvis. But John is the man who created the unique and much-loved sound of the Partridge family. The music, with lead vocals by David Cassidy and vocal arrangements by John, is considered the perfect example of what happens when you mix star quality and the best backing vocals with the musicians of the Wrecking Crew alongside beautiful lyrics and arrangements which set new standards in pop music. This was an amusing and often emotional conversation which we recorded in November 2020. In this extract he starts by talking about working with David in the recording studio. I may have helped him with phrasing once in a while. But until the last album, I wasn't there for that many of David's lead lead vocals. Because I was busy doing other things. But the last album, he wouldn't sing for Wes. 
he would only sing for me. So I produced all his vocals on the last album. And it was a piece of cake. We had so much fun. Well, I watched him grow. He was 19 when we started it. And I watched him grow and, and Wes encouraged him and so did I. Uh, keep doing what you're doing, man. It's selling. Yeah. <laughs> Don't even ask why. Just take the money. You made music, which was, you know, the soundtrack of soundtrack of our youth. And you listen to that music and you are instantly transported back there. You're a teenager again. You can feel and smell everything about that. Yep. It's amazing. It really is amazing because it was such a labor of love. And um, I'd say 90% of it was inspired. Um, some of it wasn't. I can tell you the ones that aren't. <laughs> they, weren't. <laughs> they were still good, but they weren't hit records, you know. No. All the hit records were all inspired. I mean, there were things where I said, I'm the vessel, you know, I'm not in control of this. This is coming from somewhere else. And I'm just sitting here writing notes as fast as I can. Where do you rate that in your career? Oh, it's in probably the top five, top five experiences that I had. I mean, right up there is conducting for Barbra Streisand and conducting for Andy Williams and singing with him. And I mean, they're really only a handful of, out of 35 years uh, of really top-notch moments in my life. And, and that was it. I mean, there was some stress involved. The last album, David and Wes were not seeing eye to eye because Wes wanted to be, an, I mean, David wanted to be an R&B singer and Wes said, no, you'll never sell any records. And Wes was right, by the way. Um, and that's really why David left the show because he was convinced he could be an R&B singer and all the friends around him uh, convinced him that he could be an R&B singer. But he, since then, he, he did a, a, at least one R&B version of I Think I Love You that was terrific. But he wasn't that kind of singer. He didn't, he was different. He, it's another thing that he didn't like about himself. He didn't sound like anybody. And that bothered him. Can, can you remember the first day he came into the recording studio and you heard him sing? I don't. Hmm. I don't. Isn't that something? I don't remember that day. I remember a lot of days, but I don't remember the first time I heard him sing. No. It may have been a playback. Right. I may not have been there, but I don't really recall. Yeah. But I knew immediately that the kid, well, first of all, I knew he was marketable and he was gorgeous. And it um, had a great personality, very, very caring heart he had. And, um, and his voice was one in a million. It was just not like anybody else. And that was the thrill of David Cassidy. And it was his downfall in the end, in my opinion. He didn't like the fact that he didn't sound like anybody. Really? Yeah. So are you saying that he found it hard to accept that he was so different? Yes, very. Had he been able to do that, and maybe if his father wasn't so jealous of his success, that had a lot to do with it too. Yeah. His father was so jealous of David's success. Really awful to David. It's like anything else, you know, the more Wes and I would, would encourage him, his dad would say two things and we'd have to start all over. You know? And David was a professional on all fronts. He just couldn't accept it. That's my opinion. I mean, I may be completely wrong, but that's just my opinion of working with him all those years. You mentioned earlier on about recording um, I Think I Love You. Did you get the feeling then at that moment when David's vocals were... were were put down that you had a huge hit on your hands no doubt no doubt i mean we could tell you as a group our opinion our four opinion the four of our opinion nine times out of ten we can tell you when we finish the song if it was going to be a hit 
And we were right probably 90% of the time. Were there any songs on any of the albums or perhaps there were some demos that you did that were never released as singles or should have been the hits that you think they should have been? One of them is a, was my very favorite arrangement of all times and I got to arrange the strings, the horns, the everything. Uh, roller coaster. That should have been a single, in my yeah. opinion. It was fun. It was fast. It was had energy. It was just from the brass, even though I'm bragging on myself, I mean, the brass parts, the string parts, the rhythm parts, the way David sang it, the background, everything, to me was should have been a hit. And then a song that Tony Asher and I wrote, we ended up being partners year, years later, but Tony was an unbelievable lyricist. He wrote uh, all of Brian Wilson's hits on Pet Sounds, Tony wrote. Right. Uh, yeah. Caroline, no, wouldn't it be nice? Um, God only knows. I mean, who would start a love song with I may not always love you? I mean, that's just stupid. <laughs> well, one day I walked in the office and I said, Tony, he said, what? I said, why haven't we written a song for the Partridge family? This is really stupid. And he went, yeah, you're right. It is dumb. I know the producer. <laughs> so he said, what do you got? And I said, well, nothing yet. I'll talk to you tomorrow. So I went home and was just messing around with piano groove and came up with how long is too long. Yeah. That's all I had. But I came in the next morning and started, I said, here it is. I started playing it. You know, how long is too long? How long is too long? And Tony said, stop. I said, what? He said, what does it mean? How long is too long? And I said, you're the lyricist. Figure it out. And he did. But in the beginning, see, they didn't know, nobody knew David sang. So that's why the four of us were the family. And the leads before David were my brother and Stan Farber. Together, they were the, the lead sound. And because my brother and I had been in a group, um, Love Generation, we used a lot of our stuff. You it did. was good stuff, and it was written by good people, and, and so that's what they used. Yeah. Until <laughs> Wes found out David could sing, and he went, wait a minute. You told me some time ago that watching David uh, was like seeing the emergence of a superstar. Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. He had it. Whatever it is, he had it in spades. Yeah, when I saw him the first time, it was like, forget about it. I mean, forget about it. This guy's got it. And he would have had it for years to come had he not been trying to drink his problems away or his perceived problems. As a it, singer, where where do you rate his talent? Oh, he's Frank Sinatra to me. He's uh, Ben Crosby. He's Barbara Streisand. He's the perfectionism of Streisand and, and the professionalism of Sinatra. And mm -hmm. uh, he's just one of those one of a kind, like those people I mentioned. And there's Elvis. It's another one, one of a kind. Brian Forster is best known as Chris Partridge, the youngest boy in the Partridge family and the group's drummer, which was his passport to fame. On September 25, 2020, the Partridge family celebrated 50 years. In our conversation, Brian recalls his excitement of landing the role, but in our much longer conversation, he recalls his favourite episodes as a member of the family what he learnt from his co-star David Cassidy and Shirley Jones, explains how his drumming technique improved, talks about his passion for motor racing, his love for winemaking and his family history. His grandfather was Alan Napier, who played Alfred, the faithful butler in the Batman television series. My mom started me in commercials when I was seven, um, primarily to get money to go to college because that was her, she was determined I'd go to college, but she couldn't afford it. Um, and I did very well because I was a pretty cute kid. And uh, 
along the way, I did Brady Bunch once and Family Fair once. Well, I did a, a safety film called The Talking Car. One of those films they show you in elementary school about how to cross the street safely. And um, they used that as my audition reel, essentially. They had heard about me, the Partridge Family people, that is. And they asked to see that film. And then I interviewed, I was the only one. There wasn't a mass cattle call of kids. And they actually interviewed my mom as well, because the, since the mom has to be there as a guardian the whole time, they wanted to make sure she was compatible as well. And there you go. That's how it came about. And you say you were beyond excited. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I was very, very excited. Yeah, I ran around the neighborhood screaming and all my friends and, uh, you know, I don't know, I think they were pretty excited, too. But I think in the end, they were probably like, OK, enough, enough. Calm down. <laughs> Have you got any recollections of your first day on, on the set? Well, not the first day on the set, but the first photo shoot. There's a bunch of photographs. If you see a photograph with me wearing a blue striped shirt, well, it's blue primarily with white stripes. Mm -hmm. That was my personal shirt. And my mom always used that for my auditions. And she called it my lucky shirt because I usually got the part. And so that we did all kinds of different poses of this, that, and the other thing. And um, there was one where we have our faces sticking through a picture frame as if we're in the picture. And I was right underneath Susan Day, whose legs were literally spread out for my shoulders because I'm lying on the floor and she's standing above me. And uh, that was kind of kind of interesting. So I definitely remember that. And I remember everybody being really nice to me. I mean, they all knew each other, obviously. Yeah. And here I come in the new guy, but they're all very nice and gracious to me. So. I mean, people have probably mentioned this to you before, but when you came into the series, no one really noticed that Chris had changed. Yeah, I find that very strange. But uh, I guess that shows you what a minor character Chris Partridge was, that they didn't even notice that, you know, his hair had changed. Maybe they just figured it was Hollywood. It's a California state law that children <laughs> doing show business have to do uh, three hours. Of, I think it was three. Oh, my God. It's 50 years ago, so three hours of schooling a day and we had a tutor on set who would who would do that and then during the summer we uh we didn't have to do school obviously so trying to keep us entertained when we're not filming could be interesting okay so when I first got on the show I was very excited as I've said and after a year or so when I could not go anywhere restaurant store whatever without being pointed at and stared at and you know, people whispering and, you know, it, it did get old after a while for that. But the actual work and being on the set and, and all that was great. The people I worked with, and I don't just mean the actors, I mean, uh, you know, the lighting guy and the camera guy and the, the grip guy, you know, those were, uh, but also the places that we traveled. I mean, we got to do, you know, go to Kings Island Amusement Park and we got to go to Marine Land and we got to do the cruise ship. I mean, those are really fun times then. That was getting away from the studio. Uh, gave me a set of drums to practice at home. And I started working with the teacher to learn some of the basics about drumming. And then he and I, for every song, would sit down together with the record and and uh, basically go over what, the, 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 what it was going to be. And then during this filming, he'd stand on a big ladder and air drum what I was supposed to be doing. So if I look like I'm looking off camera, staring into space, that's why. So they would give us the, the record for that, you know, songs. And usually there it wasn't just one record, one song on one record. It was a series of songs. And they'd say, okay, this week we're doing 
you know, I could feel your heartbeat or whatever, and then we'd go over it. You will often have seen David wearing a sweatshirt carrying the name John Jay College of Criminal Justice. The college was the venue for his only press conference ahead of the sellout concert at Madison Square Garden in March 1972. Pat Ravalji was the editor of a literary magazine and music editor of the newspaper at the college, and she was the driving force behind the press conference working closely with David's publicists and record company representatives to draw attention to David to an older audience as he pursued his solo career. In our conversation, Pat talks about how, as an ambitious student, she managed to secure an interview with David, but here she explains why she and many other fans believed he should have been appreciated by a much older audience. This was at a time when he was demanding more artistic control. That was a big issue. That was, you know, not only getting away from um, the teen idol issue, doing it in a way that wouldn't offend his teen fans. You know, he was so under control with the TV show and he was so under control with the records, especially the Partridge Family records, in terms of this is what you're going to sing. You know, there's that famous story of the argument over... Or doesn't somebody want to be wanted? The talking bit yes. that he really argued that he didn't want to do. So yeah, that was that was all wrapped into more artistic freedom, playing smaller venues, letting David Cassidy be David Cassidy. And I never bought into the sense that well, his fans, you know, don't want him to be anything other than Keith Partridge. I. I think they knew who David was. I knew the distinction that they drew between Keith Partridge, who was, you know, kind of a lame character, and, and David. And I think it was really David they fell in love with and, and the voice. If you watch the Partridge family, the musical numbers, I think, especially in the last seasons, are where David really shines and comes through. And they knew that that was David and that wasn't Keith. They fell in love with David, not Keith Partridge. Katie Floyd treats us here to a world-exclusive performance of a song she wrote about her inspiration, David. Katie admits she was born too late to absorb the excitement of the 1970s. Not yet 30, she cites David as one of the biggest musical influences on her career. In this episode, Katie, who is a singer-songwriter, explains how she writes her music and talks about David's impact on her chosen path. Was it his voice, the delivery of his songs that made you think, ah, okay, I've got a trained ear here. I can recognize a good voice. I can recognize the way a song should, should be delivered. Yeah, definitely. His, his voice, you knew there was something there. And, and the fact that it wasn't just uh, like, they didn't just make it sound pretty for TV. Like the fact that he actually had a beautiful voice I, and as I was telling you, it just, it sounds creamy. That's the way my mom and I described it. But yeah, just his delivery and, and he had such charisma and charm too. So he, he'll just draw anybody in who listens to him, you know? So you got to wonder like, okay, this guy has it. Like, you know, <laughs> not everyone does. So are there any particular songs of his that really touch you from a singer's point of view? Um, well, not just singing, but also listening to it. I, well, I love the way he sounds in Rock Me Baby, which is amazing. But then my, my favorite David song of all time is Daydreamer. And he just sounds so 
beautiful and it's such like a pretty light song so that and could it be forever just I don't know how to describe it I feel like you would understand like when you hear his voice when it's so soft it's you just feel safe if that makes sense it just the day is gonna be okay you feel safe you know if you need to calm down or something I'll put his record on and that song specifically really touches me the most I feel like you obviously do a lot of songwriting yes yeah where does your inspiration come from my goodness it comes from all over the place and for a lot of artists I feel like you know their pain can be something they pull from to write in music and that is something I do too so it's really just life experiences that I just write down it can be good or bad but it is like a therapy songwriting you know or poetry you have written a song for David tell us how that story came about all right well I wrote a song and I I'll show you in a minute, but in this, my songbook right here, uh-huh. I wrote it about five years ago. And since I told you that Daydreamer is one of my very favorite David songs and songs of all time. And for me, I'm like, I'm a daydreamer, but for a different reason. I'm daydreaming that what if I grew up in the 70s, you know, around David. So what I did was I named my song Daydreamer. It sounds nothing like his. There's no lyrics about his, but it's a, or I mean, I'm sorry, it's not his lyrics, but it's, um, it's a tribute to David. And I thought it was cool that I had the same name, but for a different reason. Cause I'm, I'm often daydreaming when I watch his like videos, like, oh man, I wish I was there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, okay. I was so excited. Well, am so excited to play this for you because You will pick up every reference that I'm going to play. But in this Daydreamer song, I reference some of my other favorite David songs. So you'll be able able to hear that. Sure. Okay. (laughs) All right. So this is my Daydreamer. (laughs) So Kate is going to play for us a world exclusive, her song Daydreamer. But I can't relate because there wasn't a breath in me yet. The party started, everyone's here. Wait up, I'll be there soon. Till I arrive, leave hearts in their eyes and make the whole world swoon. But for now, I'll just be a daydreamer. Like it says in your song, the only thing is it ain't raining. And I don't belong. You were a little too perfect. I was a little too late. Can I take a little step backward and maybe bump into fate? The first time I saw your face, you were living in a pet tree. It's been a while, but I'll proudly say I've been your biggest fan since 93. I don't know what I'm up against, but you know what it's all about. I got five words and you know they're true. I think I love you. But for now, I'll just be a daydreamer. Like it says in your song, the only thing is that it ain't raining. And I don't belong. You were a little too perfect. 
I was a little too late. Can I take a little step backward and maybe bump into fate? Could it be forever? I think so by the way you look at me. The sparkle in your eyes and the way you sing rockly, baby. Your smile alone can make my day. That's all you have to do. People come and people go, but I'll always cherish you. Here is a tribute from singer-songwriter Harriet Shock, who wrote That's the Way It Is With You, a song recorded on the Partridge Family album Bulletin Board. When I wrote That's the Way It Is With You, I was young and in love, having just come to Los Angeles recently from Dallas. I think in analogies, it helps me understand what's happening. So the parallels in the lyric to reading a good book and not being able to stop reading it, or hearing a song you wanted to hear over and over, that's what this feeling felt like. The song was called That's the Way It Is With You, and it was on my first album called Hollywood Town. The title song was covered by Manfred Mann, and Helen Reddy had a Grammy-nominated hit with another song on the same album, Ain't No Way to Treat a Lady. I'm not sure how the Partridge family heard That's the Way It Is With You, but when I heard how soulful David sounded on it, I was absolutely thrilled. As a journeyman songwriter, I've had hundreds of recordings as well as film and TV placements, but in the top 10 of my personal charts is David Cassidy singing my song, That's the Way It Is With You. I'll be forever grateful for that. David Hamilton is one of Britain's best-loved broadcasters, who's been at the cutting edge of entertainment for more than 60 years. I spoke to him about his boyhood dream of becoming a professional footballer and how his broadcasting career took off with the British Forces Network in Germany in 1959. David joined Radio 1, the leading pop station in the UK, where he first met David Cassidy when he was a guest on his show in 1972. The following year, he was invited to compare David's UK tour when he sold out a record-breaking six concerts in three days at Wembley's Empire Pool, a record previously held by the Rolling Stones. In this short extract, David reflects on working with the 1970s superstar and the impact of fandom on international stars. You will then hear from Nina Miskoff, who was the first woman editor of Jackie magazine. She was at the cutting edge of pop culture in the 1970s, playing a key role with innovative ideas which took sales up to one million copies a week, thanks to putting David Cassidy's picture on the front cover. Here, 
she recalls meeting David at the height of his fame, sharing his reaction when, many years later, she played him a recording he made for a giveaway flexi-disc in Jackie magazine. And as you know, I, I compared one of his UK tours. And um, I tell the story, which uh, I told you, and I think you put in your book, um, about how he hated the girls screaming. So so that he couldn't hear the girls screaming, because he was a good singer, he wanted them to hear him. He put cotton wool in his ears, and then realised that he couldn't hear the band. So that didn't work. So it was a kind of no-win situation. You know, I got to know him quite well uh, on the tour and I got to realise that, um, you know, he wasn't always completely happy. I think, you know, while he was here in the UK, he would love to have seen a bit of the country. He would love to go horse riding during the day, instead of which he spent his whole time holed up in hotel rooms, you know, which is, you know, not great for anybody, is it? You can't exercise, you can't go anywhere or do anything that's that's what happens when you have you know supreme stardom is that the um the fervor of your fans sometimes makes like life difficult for you i did one of the first television interviews with the beatles in 1963 and also interviewed brian epstein their manager and uh, jerry marsden his new protege and then uh, later that year i introduced the beatles uh, at the Ermston show in manchester and um, it was early days for them so it was not you know hollywood bowl or big venues or anything like that i think the show was done in a huge tent a bit like jerry cottle's circus tent you know huge enormous marquee and i remember the girls um stampeding the stage you know and i, I introduced them and i thought cracky i better get off here and i all right for me i jumped off and that was my bit done but the, the, they were just it was early days it was before Beatlemania had been um coined and then the next year i introduced the rolling stones at the palace theater manchester Going back to David, can you remember the first time you met him? Was it through uh, Dave Bridger? Uh, yeah, I think it might have been. David Bridger was with Bell Records, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He was the he was the promoter, and it would be somebody like David who would bring somebody David Bridger, that is, who would bring somebody like David Cassidy to our attention for the first time. He would say, "Got great record for you. He must listen to this." This guy is absolutely so hot. He's done this, that, and the other. You know, he's been in the Partridge family. He's a big star in America. He's going to be a huge star here. So you put it on, you listen to it with the, uh, it was all vinyl, of course, in those days. Listen to it with the producer and say, oh, God, yeah, this is going to be huge. Must have this as our record of the week. Hamilton Hotshot, I called it on Radio 1. Yeah, uh, then when I was asked to do the tour, I saw, you know, Cassidy Mania at, uh, at Close Up. And, you know, we went around the country. Didn't matter where you were in the country. Uh, it was all the same because he was the hottest teen idol at the time. The only rivals that he had really were the Osmonds. I mean, David Cassidy was gorgeous looking, wasn't he? I mean, he was every girl's dream. That's what I always say about him. Uh, he was so good looking. He had that wonderful sort of men had in those days, very long hair. And um, of course, he was, you know, wonderful specimen. He was wonderful shape. So even I as a man, even I as a heterosexual man, could understand that... Uh, Women, young women would find David Cassidy uh, really. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, um, it, it's always men. It's always men who are considered to be the more aggressive sex. We get into a really serious area here now, and yet men don't go along to concerts and scream and shout <laughs> and throw their knickers on the stage, do they? <laughs> like, 
And I think one of the things we were, we took a great deal of care with, with Jackie magazine was to recognize what a crush was and how important it was to a young girl to have an object of fantasy and desire. Practicing for romance, practicing for life, I think, in a way. The Jackie readers were divided between Donny Osmond and David Cassidy. And I, you know, I don't think war ever really broke out, but if you loved one, you didn't love the other, mostly. And they were both equally worthy of little girl's affection, I think. Because David gave you your biggest seller in one, one issue in 1972. I think yeah, that was around the time the sales went from like 600,000 a week thousand, to a million. To, that and the, we, we, we instigated the, the, the three-part pin-up because the Jackie was huge compared to some other magazines. So we'd, we'd have the centre page spread as a pin-up and then I had the idea of doing it over three parts, over three weeks, so that you'd have to buy it for three weeks, which was the marketing bit. And so you'd give away the middle bit and then, then, the, and then, the, and then the legs and you'd give away the head last because if you gave the head first, they might not <laughs> get the other two parts. And, and then say so the, the sales shot up. The David Cassidy cover was the one that did it, I think. Sometimes the colours didn't quite match. <laughs> I know, this is the terrible thing. The, the, the printing process was not the most sophisticated and it was so sad because they'd they'd come back in the post they'd fold them up and say I can't make it fit you know and you know and, and there'd be an overlap of the of the fingers you know so there'd be you know so it looked like they like bunches of bananas and it was always oh, terrible there was nothing we could do about it. all the colors didn't match up you know there'd be flesh tone of you know sort of almost puce on the face and then deathly pale on the hands you know think, oh no Tell, t- tell me uh, about your encounters with him, because you did meet David a few times. And I did. And found him incredibly shy. The first time I saw him was at a press conference in Scotland, and I think he was being launched as the face of Keep Scotland Tidy, something like that. It was, and there was a crowd of journalists in a room, probably about 40, maybe 50, a small room. And he came in and he sat down and he looked up at everybody and the photographers and the journalists and he just blushed. He just, he just absolutely blushed. And you, your heart went out to him. And at that time, it was Cassidy mania. You know, the, I remember being in a car with him, being driven through the centre of Glasgow, I think it was. And the police had actually turned the traffic lights so that everything was green on his route so he didn't have to be stopped but, I, but something went wrong and there was a red light and the car was just completely overwhelmed with kids you know crawling all over it and banging on and try, pulling off the the windscreen wipers and you know just and you know he, he was under siege really and it was I think that was must have been terrifying for him I interviewed him, you know, several times in those sort of days. But then I interviewed him later on and I interviewed him probably in the late 90s and met him a few times. And there was a kind of almost like this is your life that he did. And I was invited as a guest onto that. I found him. He's a very, very smart man and very, very talented. But I found him troubled. I always found him troubled. And in the late 90s, and I did a big interview with him, I think, for The Mirror. And he told me then about his father and the... Uh, pressures of having a father who was alcoholic and uh, in those days they called him manic depressive. All he really wanted actually in life, I came to the conclusion, was that he wanted his father's approval and he never got it. And the terrible thing was that in, you know, in his late teens when he was really uh, getting so famous around the world and he'd done the Partridge family and he was having all hit singles and he was getting more and more and more fame, which a normal parent would have been thrilled about. It only caused jealousy in his father and so the more famous he got the more he was trying to 
get his father's approval, the more it backfired on him. And uh, that seemed to me very sad. And I think that coloured his life. And I think that sadly really was the undoing of him. I remember you saying that you'd played him at one interview, a flexi disc, because Jackie yeah. and you always used to give out flexi discs of the stars of the day. Yeah. Tell us what his reaction was. I was interviewing him in a little recording studio in called Wise Buddha in um, centre of London. And it was for a Radio 2 miniseries. It was two parts and it was, I was a teenage heartthrob and one part was David Casty and another was Donny Osmond. And I was interviewing him and it was a tiny little studio. I mean, we were, we were like as close as you and I are. I know we're, we're looking at each other down a Zoom lens, as it were. But he was just there. I could, I could reach out and touch him. He was on a little thing and a microphone. He had a microphone. And he was wearing a baseball cap. And I said to him, David, I wanted you to listen to this because, you know, it's a Jackie Flexi disc. We managed to get some sound out of it just to see what memories it brings back. Because it, it starts out by saying, you know, I'm David Cassidy and I'm sitting here in my studio with my trusty dog and I'm looking out at whatever. And the engineer played that so he could hear it. And I looked at him and his head went down. So I couldn't see and his cap was, um, the brim was in the way. And then he looked up and his eyes were absolutely filled with tears. And I, I said, oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to upset you. He said, no, he said, I'm, I'm listening to the voice of an innocent man thing is he knew how talented he was he knew how brilliant he was and yet he could or he could never feel happy with that somehow michael pomerico is best known for his work on abc tv's daytime drama all my children for over 30 years 15 of those as a director michael has been a loyal david cassidy fan since 1970 he reflects on his own career david's acting career on television and the stage relives David's 1972 Madison Square Garden concert and offers an analysis of David's songs and the respect he had from his peers. In this extract, he reflects on the legacy. I think he made a difference in people's lives. And what else can you do, even if you touch one person? And he touched millions uh, mm-hmm. in different formats. Be Broadway, whether it be uh, music uh, in the studio. You know what I remember is that The View the rehearsal when when, because it was a live show and david sang live he ran through his songs several times and in between songs he was talking to the other musicians that were on the stage that they had hired for him and he was talking about equipment and it struck me that man he even knows technical stuff he knows his stuff he invested in the types of guitars and the music and he knew the process. He knew how to do everything. Yeah, he touched the whole, he did, he just didn't touch the United States. You know, he touched the world. And that's what is, is, is to me, when you say legacy, to me, it's like, gosh, everywhere you go, somebody's heard of him. His records were big all over the world. It doesn't happen. It didn't happen uh, to a lot of people. It was just something about the mix of his voice, his looks, the show, the writing, the, the, the time period. Like you said, you know, we, we, we were, you got to remember where we were in 68, 69 with the Vietnam War and the Manson's murders and, and John, Robert F. Kennedy being assassinated and all this turmoil in the world. And then this nice little show mm. comes along that just is a great escapism and it's charming. 
like I said, when I watch the Partridge Family shows, I always look at the end of scenes and see as the camera's fading what they're doing or saying or whatever, because to me, that's knowing with my experience, that's them. That's the real them. A couple of little things have happened where, I, where, we, where I've seen them. Uh, and I just say, that's David. He solidified for me how I viewed him as like this multi-talented entertainer. He could act. He knew what he was doing as an actor. <laughs> he really knew what he was doing as an actor. He knew what he was doing as a dramatic actor. He knew what he was doing as a comedic actor. He knew how to perform and to sing. Because of that acting uh, ability, I believe that's his, how he interpreted his songs. You, you, ju you just don't turn that off. You know, you, you can't turn it off. I mean, one, I, again, one of the things that stand out of my mind is him singing My First Night Alone Without You at Madison Square Garden. That vocal echoing in the garden, you taught me how to live, to be myself and how to give, that was like, whoa, this was, this was um, very, very powerful. And a very, the reading of the lyrics were very, um, you know, as a, as a 15 year old kid at the time, I wasn't moved as much just because of my age. Uh, but there was something there and that I, I recognized. And so uh, I just think he was, he was a very great lyrical interpretator. And hugely underappreciated. Totally underappreciated. You know, if he, uh, if he didn't have the baggage, the Keith Partridge baggage that unfortunately he had, which it's a double-edged sword in a way, because if you think about it, uh, the fact that he did have this image just showed you how good he was. Yeah. Could, could anybody have been Keith Partridge? Mm, I don't think so. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. It was just the perfect, that's why they have, that's why they read for the part. And my special guest today is Richie Furet, a pioneer of California country rock. He started Buffalo Springfield with Neil Young and Stephen Stills, later forming Poco, two bands which had a major influence on David's love of music. He recalls how he met David Cassidy, who he considers creative, talented and hugely underrated. He invited David to sing backing harmonies on three tracks on his Dance a Little Light album. He talks about their friendship and his own composition for Someone I Love, which David reworked as Loving Bloom. I know David was, he, he was troubled. There was no doubt about it. Mm. And, um, you know, I think he, he saw himself in one light and, and the, the things that he was trying to do and to accomplish, uh, you know, he was still under the control of this umbrella that saw him as someone else. And, and I think that was such a, a tragic, uh, um, you know, part of his life that he just couldn't get out from under. You know, I, w I was just thinking, David and I had our moment, and it was a very, it was a very small, uh, you know, time when uh, my wife Nancy's good friend Jane, but she was his housekeeper for a long time, or for quite a while, and she was one of Nancy's uh, dear friends, and that's how our connection with him happened. And so, yes, we did. We, we, we spent a lot of time. But then I was remembering when I went uh, back to New York once on a, on a visit and he was doing the Coat of Many Colors. And, you know, I got in touch with him. And actually, at the end of the day, when I saw him, it was almost like he was another person. He wanted to break away from being this idol, you know, this teen boppy idol where he wanted a mature respect coming to him. And so there was his trouble. But then later on, obviously in life, you know, when, 
um, you know, I, like everybody else, would read the stories, you know, where he would be struggling with his alcohol or with something, you know, that would, uh, that would just be devastating to him and finally caught up to him. Because I never, I, I guess, you know, he never really got to the point that he wanted to go and where he just could be accepted for who I am. I'm just David. I'm David, I'm just David Cassidy, and and you know what? I've I've got this little bag of talent here and I love to share it with you and, and all that, but he never got he never got to see it, I think, in the way to where where he felt this is really me. This is really me. I was this manufactured little thing over here, you know, and, and people grabbed onto that and and bless their heart, because I mean so many people loved him for that. But you know, he was more than that. He was more than that. And that's what he that's where he was troubled in that he could never really break out of that mold. International recording artist Robbie Di Stefano has carved out a successful music career inspired by David. He explained how David has been so important to him and why touring Australia allowed him to walk in the footsteps of his idol. Robbie, who lives in Argentina, doesn't speak a lot of English, so shared his story with translation help from his son Alexis and his friend Ramiro Turon. This interview appears on the November 24 episode, Fans Around the World Remember David. You can visit my YouTube channel, the David Cassidy Connections, which you can find under my name, to see Robbie recording for this episode, for which he performed this composition, Tell Me How Long, Honey. Cuántos pretextos, preguntas y sueños se fueron contigo Hasta cuándo corazón seguirás recordando Basta ya, por favor, déjala ir Hasta cuándo corazón seguiremos así ya no quiero medio vivir. Jim Salamanis has been a decades-long fan and has one of the biggest single collections of David Cassidy and Partridge family memorabilia in the world. He firmly believes David's solo back catalogue should be remastered and released with previously unheard demos, rarities, alternate versions, concert rehearsals, live recordings and bonus tracks for any configuration in a deluxe box set. Jim also leads the battle cry for a deluxe box set of the Partridge family music, again adding previously unreleased tracks and alternate versions of their vast catalogue for a similar collection presentation. We shared a passionate, calm and measured argument, explaining why the music is so important to David's legacy and why the search for previously unseen vintage concert footage goes on. He was just so underrated, and he was so huge. Yes, I know people like Michael Jackson were huge, and George Michael. There's so many of those people too, but people tend to forget that David had one of the biggest fan clubs in the, the entire planet in the early 70s, bigger than the Beatles and Elvis Presley too. People tend to forget this, and we all need to be reminded. 
you know, even his RCA albums that he did, there would be a lot of songs from both, at least his first two albums, The High They Climb, as well as Home Is Where The Heart Is. We know that was more music that was recorded back then, which has never, ever seen the light of day. And of course, we know getting it in the street and everything that he did after that too, even late 70s, he did as you know, Japan released the best of, and we were all surprised because we all thought it was a, an actual best of, but it wasn't really a best of. It was unreleased music by David Cassidy. So where's all that stuff? Did you like the content of, of that Japanese release? Because it was a different style. It was a very different style of music, David. But you know what? The voice was still there. Mm. The voice was still there. The only thing is that with the cover, they used just an old Partridge family picture from 1970, which I thought was a bit ridiculous, to be honest with you. It should have been a mid-70s photo of David because that's when he would have recorded all that music. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we know that was also released in the States on CD, but they only used nine tracks from that, and they included the original I Think I Love You. So they didn't get the full 13 tracks that J- that the Japanese market did. And that's the only cool thing about Japan. Japan releases a lot of amazing CDs. You know, they recreated David's catalogue, Dreams of Nothing More Than Wishes and Cassidy Live and The High They Climb and um, Home Is Where The Heart Is and Getting It In The Street on the cardboard sleeve. They did such an outstanding job on on those. And um, today I would say they're worth an absolute fortune. You can't really buy those anymore. I'm sure I've seen the original Dreams Japanese CD, close to $300, I think I saw it. Wow. And I'm not surprised, you know, because the Japanese um, are really good when it comes to releasing CDs of any artist. They basically release a certain amount and that's it. It becomes collectible literally straight away. And they're all a very good price, actually. But once they go, they go, you can't find them again. And in years to come, these CDs are going to be worth an absolute fortune. A lot of the Partridge Family CDs are starting to go now anyway. There's literally only three CDs available at the moment. I believe that's Sound Magazine, Shopping Bag and Christmas Card. After that, there's literally nothing left. Bulletin Board, Crossword Puzzle, Notebook, they're worth a fortune today. I I remember when David passed away, Bulletin Board was worth in the vicinity of close to $350 US dollars, which was astounding to me. I, I do believe that Sony needs to reissue a lot of this catalogue again from the very beginning. And not only that, add extra bonus tracks, add the unreleased songs, add a lot of the different versions of each song. And that also includes David's catalogue. We all know for a fact David recorded so much more in his early days, Bell recordings. I had even heard his dreams are nothing more than wishes. It was close to 50 tracks that he recorded at that time in Hawaii. Now, who has that? I don't know. I can't even tell you whether Sony even has that. That could be sitting in someone's garage in Hawaii somewhere, just sitting there, which would be a real shame considering the music he recorded back then, you know? As a longtime fan, I want these out. And I feel that he deserves this more than anyone else in this entire planet. He really does deserve to have his music out. I'd like to be able to walk into a music store and, and find a box set not only on the Partridge family, but one on David Cassidy too. I agree with you entirely because I I believe we need an extensive and exhaustive compilation of his solo work presented in anything up to, say, a 27-disc box set. Yeah, I agree. 
vast, Absolutely. His vast music archive can be explored to produce this priceless collector's item that includes individual book style volumes. I agree. So Absolutely agree with you. So yeah. we would have previously unreleased studio demos, rough cuts, previously unissued live recordings, because the yes. live album should have been a double, as we know. Yes. The demos that he recorded, remixes, outtakes, alternate versions. And what this would give his fans, music collectors who appreciate good, good music, the yes. opportunity to own the evolution of David Cassidy and witness his yes. part in the musical revolutions o over the decades. Because he was more than just the Cherish album, Rocky Baby. There was far more substance to him than anyone perhaps ever gave him credit for. And this is why his legacy is very important. It needs to come out. It needs to come out. We need to have like a separate box set for the Partridge family, a separate box set for David Cassidy. That's how it should be. After David died, basically we got nothing. And I don't understand that at all. David has said it countless of times. There's over 200 songs in the vaults at Sony. I want people to, to listen to this music and think, wow, David Cassidy must have been massive. And of course he was. We know that. But we want young kids to understand what he was all about. Daryl Lloyd singles out David for being responsible for his successful career as a photographer, an interest which started in 1970 when he was 10 years old. Daryl shares anecdotes about his photographic career, meeting David and, as he describes here, a revealing conversation he had with Mike Melvoin, who was a member of the Wrecking Crew, the musicians who worked on the Partridge family music. If you listen to the complete episode, Daryl also calls for musicians who admire David's work to pay a special tribute to his music. And then there was a couple of songs off of Didn't You Used To Be that I like. And then after that, uh, it was just like a sporadic type thing. When did you get the first chance to meet him? The book signing. I went to the book signing. I took my, my camera. And uh, I said, I'm going to get a photo of him, no matter what, I'm going to get a photo. And of course, while you're standing in line, they're like saying, no photos, you know, we don't have time for photos and things like that. I said, uh, I I'm going to get a photo. And so here, let, let me show you this. Let me show you this. I have the photo. Let me see if I can show it to you. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, hang on. That that's a lovely picture. Oh, yeah. I have this hanging. I have this hanging above my desk, Great. and it was just a, 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 a. And I I was the only one that was able to get a photo with David that day. Wow! <laughs> wow. And it was it was spectacular. And then I met him at uh, Tower Records when he was promoting the the nineteen ninety the the self titled CD. And then I met him for, oh my goodness, what album was that? Then and Now, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I got that. And, uh, and I also have that autographed by Mike Melvoin, um, because Mike Melvoin did a concert at a local jazz club in Los Angeles, and I went to the show. And after the show, you know, he's hanging out, talking, you know, and I, I, I knew that he was, I brought the CD with me on purpose for him to autograph. So on the CD, I've got Mike's autograph and David's autograph. And it was spectacular. Mike was surprised. He, he, he looked at the album and he, and he recalled 
you know, producing the album and, and the time that he had on it. And he said, my favorite uh, song that we recorded was on Broadway. And I said, on Broadway? That's not on this album. He said, yes, it is. I said, no, it's not. And so he flipped it over and he went, huh, it's not on here. I'm like, I already told you it's not on there. But now that he, you know, since he mentioned it, I'm like, man, I'd like to hear that. So yeah. it's, it's somewhere, so it exists somewhere. Do you think there is a missing back catalogue some, somewhere that none of us have heard? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's, 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 yes, yes. There's probably lots of demos and there's probably absolutely a lot of completed songs that just didn't make it on, just by the nature of albums, you know, there are certain songs that make it and there are some that, that there are not, it's not room for, mm. you know. The one thing that, that I had always wished that David had, had done was to make a double album, double CD, where he can just pile on the songs. How important is it to his legacy that we as lifelong fans and people generally get those songs released that completely encompasses everything he ever did? That, that would be an ideal situation because most artists do get that at, at, at some point in time. You know, Elvis got that. You know, Rod Stewart's done a couple of them. Uh, Elton John has done a couple of them. David Bowie absolutely have done them. It's, it's time for a box set of David Cassidy. Ruth McCartney was four years old when she found herself with a front row seat to Beatlemania. Her mother had married Paul's father. Jim after a short courtship in 1964 and it was just another day when John Lennon would come over to stay or Jimi Hendrix arrive unannounced on the doorstep. Today Ruth runs creative digital agency McCartney Multimedia with her husband Martin and mother Angie. Their first client was David Cassidy who was a close friend. She set up and ran his first website. She talks passionately about their friendship which started when they met in an elevator and tells how she immediately took him home to meet her mother. Ruth shares some wonderful memories of their time together and how David reacted when, out of the blue, Paul phoned him in London. I was working as a, um, a freelance truck driver and film crew worker person in Hollywood and I was in between projects. I was working for a commercial production company called Paisley Productions and, you know, it's project to project, just like life is now. And uh, I thought, you know, I've had a pretty good week last week. Three of the shoots ran late. I'm getting an overtime check. I'm going to go into Beverly Hills. I'm going to get all dressed up, put my face on. I'm going to actually have a day off and go into Neiman Marcus and find a big floppy sun hat for a ridiculous amount of money. And then I'm going to go across the street to the Hotel Rodeo and buy myself a glass of champagne and go home. So I was in the middle of all of that, heading up to the top floor to the millinery department and the floor, the elevator opened on the second floor and in steps David Bruce Cassidy. Mm. And there I am alone in, in a lift. And I thought, should I push the stop button? <laughs> <laughs> I've got so much to say to him. And of course, you know, open mouth insert foot. I went, oh, David Bruce, David Bruce Cassidy born, you know, 12th of April, 1950, your social security number is blah, 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 blah. Your license plate on your Corvette is SXY641. And he's like, all of a sudden he's backed up against the wall. And I had six inch heels on. So I had a good, you know, few inches on him because we were the same height and stocking feet. He's like five, nine. And I'm towering over him. 
And he's like, oh, well, nice to meet you. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You, you signed a, an autographed picture to me. Um, Ruth Aarons was your agent. William Morris was your thing. My, my, my stepbrother rang you. You were staying at the Dorchester and you hung up the phone on him. He's like, wait, you're not McCartney. And I went, yeah. He's like, oh my God, I remember signing that because some bloke rings me up and pretends to be Paul McCartney. And turned out it was. I said, well, I've got the picture still stuck on my fridge in my house in North Hollywood. You want to come home and see it? And he's like, all right. Really? So, yeah. <laughs> Took him home for lunch to meet mum, and there was the picture, which is still hanging on my wall, and it is inscribed to Ruth: "Be happy and stay free." <laughs> wow. So that was how we stuck yeah. up a friendship, and he was like just you know an absolute sweetheart. And then whenever he was in town, he would you know I was the shoulder he would cry on, and he would come over to the house and cook him all his favorite things. And was he a good friend? Oh, God, yes. He would do, once you were his friend, he would, yeah, defend you to the death. It's that old, you know, New Jersey Irish boy in him. Yes. Very, very loyal chap. Yeah. Lovely boy. Yeah. Just such a tragedy. I can't believe we're talking about him in the past tense still. I still dream about him. I still was sitting in Vegas with Sue and my husband Martin having dinner at the Rio, or we're in a meeting with W.H. Smith discussing his merchandise, or we're running his fan club or, you know, we built his first website and all of that stuff. So yeah, yeah, we go back, I think it was, what would it be? 1980 something. I never remember the year when we met and struck up the friendship, but he just was gobsmacked to walk into a house in North Hollywood and there stuck on the fridge with six cheesy magnets is a picture that he signed in 1972. <laughs> it's incredible, isn't it? That story that, that you were relating just now, can you um, enlighten anyone who's not familiar with it? the story of when Paul wanted to talk to David when he was in London. Yeah. So Paul was home and, and um, David was in, in England touring and I'd seen pictures in the paper with David Bridger, the Arista A&R gentleman. Yeah. And they had somewhere in there, it said, and David, who is staying at the Dorchester. So I was like, aha, I know where he's staying. So of course I, like every other te a teenage or 12 year old girl rang the, rang the switchboard and asked for him. And no go. Well, I'm sorry, don't know David Cassidy's not staying here. Of course he had an alias, right? And so I nagged the living daylights out of Paul, who made some calls to his office in London, who made some calls to, I guess, Ruth Aaron's office in Beverly Hills to find out his alias, which anybody really could have guessed. It was David Jackson. David Jacks son <laughs> duh so then i said oh ring him up ring him up ring him up before he checks out before he goes back to america so of course paul rings through to the dorchester and says yeah mr david jackson please i believe he's in you know the so-and-so suite he, he got all the information so paul gets through and i'm listening on the extension hand over the phone all bated breath <laughs> and um paul gets through and he said david answers with hello like who the hell's got this number you know um and paul was all nervous he's like oh hello is this david um um bruce um um jackson and he's like who wants to know and he said this is paul mccartney and david said yeah and this is the effing duke of edinburgh and i'm up on it he didn't believe it <laughs> so i was like please paul ring him back ring him back ring him back and he's like no 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 he's not he's never gonna believe it's me i'm like oh please 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 ring him back so he got through again and um, this time he's like, no, 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 it's really me. And, you know, they had a quick conversation. And knowing David later, he said he just, he collapsed on the couch going, there's a beetle ringing me. Why? What have I done? Have I done something wrong? 
So Paul said, no, he said, my kid's sister's a mad fan and blah, blah, blah. Would you sign a thing and I'll give you the address in Haswell? Well, about three days later, um, the up-to-date album arrived, the postcard album arrived, the Christmas card album arrived, the oh. 8 by 10 arrived, the whole bloody, all signed. I've still got them. Rob Proust has enjoyed a remarkable career, which started at the age of five when he discovered the music of the Partridge family. His passion for music led him to joining his first band at the age of 10. He later played with the Spoons and Honeymoon Suite, but in what he describes as a light bulb moment, switched from rock bands to playing keyboards in hit musicals, including Cats, Phantom of the Opera, Miss Saigon, and later working with Benny and Bjorn of ABBA on the successful musical Mamma Mia for 15 years. He was musical director of the Broadway production. Rob taught actor Rami Malek how to play the piano for his role as Freddie Mercury in the movie Bohemian Rhapsody. Rob explains here the influence David Cassidy had on his career, why his music is so important, and how our formative years make us the people we become. He personally, or he specifically, I think was my first uh, entry into the world of, of, a, of like knowing what a pop idol is. I mean, if I look back and think, how obsessed was I with him? You know, what was it in him that was so inspirational? It was like that ideal of of a guy who's not that old, but he's so cool. And I would, I had a, I, and I'm always looking for this picture. I had a giant poster on my bedroom wall. It was a black and white photograph of David. And every once in a while, I Google David Cassidy posters, and I've still never seen the actual image from the poster. And I'll know it as soon as I see it. But I haven't. it's very strange that there's so many pictures of him. But the one that I had specifically, I've never seen. It's very weird. It's a black and white photo. And it was, it was sort of a casual photo. And I got it at the local department store. They probably had a bunch of different ones, but I think I just wanted the biggest one of David. Um, but I think his, his influence on me was just a general love of pop music and the idea of of making music that people people relate to and that comes from him as a person from him as in his personality on the television show and listening to the records and listening to his voice and it's it's almost not even a specific thing as much as it's it just is who I am in that way it's very strange that i i couldn't remove him and his influence from my life because it was because it was coming up at the same time like I said as I was learning piano those things were happening at the exact same time and my my love of the Partridge family was all encompassing <laughs> you know um, I remember when he did his first solo album when Cherish was released that was a different thing for me as well because I it was the first time I had to think wow he's not a he now he's not a member of the Partridge family it's David on his own and that record still is magical to me in many ways too. Hal Eisenberg and his Beach Boys tribute band opened for David in Atlanta in 2003, where he observed close up the impact of being a teenage idol appeared to have on David. He shared his thoughts on how David was labelled and the impact that had on his career. Hal offers an analysis on the price of fame and explains why David's The Higher They Climb album needs to be recognised more as a template for what he was capable of achieving musically. I just wanted to take you back to when, a few minutes ago, when you spoke about The Higher They Climb. Did you see that as a concept album and that David was trying to put a message out there? I do. I did. Uh, I, I think it was David's idea 
first of all, you know, if you see the album cover, uh, it's like him grasping for a star. You know, he's like he's like floating in the air and, and, and about to come down. And um, I think that's what metaphorically he was saying is I was up there. I was a rock and roll star, and now look at me, and this is my life. So I do think a lot of it was biographical, autobiographical. And do you and think it was a message to those who followed in his footsteps? Beware of what you wish for. Yeah, very well. That's very well put. I, I do think that. Uh, he might have been sending a message out to, to the future teen idols that be careful what you wish for because this is what happened to me. Mm. and the box I'm in. Yeah. It's funny, though, to me, it's kind of ironic, at least in my mind, that the, the album that he, that he did that points that irony out is also, to me, the album that shows how diversified he was. His vocals on a lot of those songs outshine some of the originals. His, his styling is David. You, you can tell when you hear David Cassidy. You can tell when you hear his music. It's very identifiable. His voice is very identifiable. So in all his frustration throughout his life, which drove him to the demons that he had, the reality is he did establish himself. He was a talented artist. And how sad it is and how typical it is that a musician of his stature only becomes recognized after you're gone. You know, that happens so many times because people actually take the time to stop and say, well, what did he do in his life? Oh, I didn't know he did that. Oh, he sang with that person. He recorded with, oh, I didn't know that. And that's when you get to, unfortunately, get the recognition. It happens to a lot of them, uh, yeah. unfortunately. You mentioned about at the concert where you were opening for him, how he looked at the cover of the Life magazine, you know, and said, oh, I look like a girl. And he often mm -hmm. said, oh, doesn't she look pretty? Mm -hmm. Do you think that for many stars like him who have been the most popular person on the planet, the centre of a young teenage girl's fantasy, let's not forget for young men, he was the person they wanted to be. He helped give them their identity. But right. is it right for people like him and, and others before him and since, by saying that about themselves, are they really being quite offensive to their fans because that is the image that a young girl fell in love with? Who is it for them to make a judgment call that they can easily dismiss the type of person they were because of the way they looked? From the, from the, from the grown woman who was a young girl at the time that idolized him, she sees that as, you know, almost like an insult to her, you know. But, but I also, what I see is, the inner demon of the, of the artist, that's David. I see David fighting with himself. When he says something like that, it's his way of saying, I'm not that guy. I might have been that guy, but I, I'm not that guy. I don't want to be that guy. And damn it, I am still that guy because everybody knows me as that guy. It's just a, to me, it's a frustration, a self-effacing way of recognizing the fame, being angered that he's, famous for being the teen idol, but at the same time realizing that's why you were able to make it in the industry to start with. He is definitely an artist to be reckoned with. When you think of the music of the 70s and the 80s, it is hard not to, if, you're, if you are a music aficionado, it's hard not to put him in with all the greats. 
if you're a deeper music fan than the casual fan, you owe it to yourself to give his music a listen outside of what you know of him. It will make you smile because you won't realize uh, what he brought to the table until you listen to it. Philip Clark has been an ardent fan of David since October 1973, when David released his Dreams Are Nothing More Than Wishes album. David has been a strong source of inspiration and influence in different aspects of Philip's life. He talks about David's impact, his music, and why he needs to be recognised for his contribution to music. But I do think that if, if he had entered music in a different way, and it would have probably been with some acting success behind him, which would have given him some clout, which probably would have allowed him to negotiate a different kind of scenario in the, in the recording studio around the kinds of songs he wanted to play and, and have people hear. Yeah, I do think he would have been regarded much more highly than he is. And, you know, a number of people have gone on record for saying that he is a seriously great singer, and he was. He was, absolutely. Like, a magnificent singer. Magnificent. Yeah. I, as a young lad even, was always drawn to music. And I think, you know, my earliest musical influence was actually Cilla Black from the 60s. And the whole Mersey scene, I was a, obviously a young lad, my mum was a huge Beatles fan. My elder brother was a huge Beatles fan. And I adored Cilla Black from the get-go. Music was always important to me. And what David Cassidy gave me was a focal point. And so then through my, through my teen years, and especially when I came to Australia, he was my musical expression. As a young lad, I sang in choirs and wanted to better myself as a singer. When I became much more intentional about being a singer, I used to listen to David. And I used to play vignettes of his songs and think how did he achieve that vocal sound how did he develop his voice that way what's he doing there you know how's he creating that and there are many 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 and david is definitely a great example of this singers who are natural singers but there are just as many artists if not most artists at some point have had vocal coaching and so by the time I was a, a young adult, I, I met my, my wife. We were both very young when we met. We were 19. We got married when we were 22. So that set me on a path in terms of you know, life's expectations, which I'm very grateful for. But musically, I still continued my dreams. And I, and I studied singing through all of my 20s. But always in the back of my mind, it was, I couldn't emulate David. You know, his voice is his voice. My voice is my voice. But I feel his presence when I sing and I feel his inspiration when I sing. And in later years, when I've had the chance to stage shows, I've staged cabarets and stuff and done vocal arrangements. I've taken the opportunity where I can to sing some of his songs and bring them to an audience. And it's given me great satisfaction. On the flip side of performing as well, not, well, not quite the flip side, but through musicals, you know, I've been involved in musicals, uh, both as a performer and as a director, a musical director. And, you know, so I've had opportunities for, to do things like Carousel in Oklahoma, which, of course, was Shirley Jones's big beginning. But I've also played the part of Joseph and the amazing Taylor Color Dreamcoat. And, and I've musical directed three different productions of Jesus Christ Superstar, which David also did. Corny as this might sound, he was with me when I did those things. And, and especially Joseph. Joseph is, when I reflect on my performing, that role was just very, very special for a number of reasons. And one of them being, I finally had the chance to play a role that David had done himself. It's always there. It's always there as an influence for me. 
how important is his legacy to to you? When I think about my funeral, I think about what David Cassidy's song Go On played. So as I leave this life, I want David there. This will sound a bit bizarre to a lot of people. My wife and I laugh about it. But in my wardrobe, I've got my amazing Technicolor dream coat. And I've said to my wife, I want to be buried in that, with that. And I want placed in my coffin something of David when I die. So that's, that's the end of my life. Right now, what's tremendously important to me is to have opportunities like this. I, I get, I hopefully, hope it comes across, I get joy speaking about him through David Cassidy. Not only is there whatever I drew out of the experience of allowing him into my life as an artist, but I've had the, the you know, the great honour to meet such incredible people who, yeah, David Cassidy was the first thing we had in common, um, but now we're great friends. Even as I think about the experiences, you know, particularly when David finally got back to Australia. The first time I saw David perform was in the Cobra in Las Vegas um, in 2000. That was the first time I'd ever seen him perform live. But the first time I ever saw him in concert live, because I was a bit too young and a bit too far away from London and Manchester to go and see him in England, was in the early 2000s in Australia. And um, my son, who um, is a great guitarist himself, Nicholas, you know, he came with me to two of the concerts and he was blown away by David. And my wife came with me to Melbourne and we had this fantastic experience in the David Cassidy mosh pit in Melbourne. Like I can just, there are, there are so many things that are either directly or indirectly related to David, you know, and I just, I feel grateful. I feel inspired. I feel uh, happy. If David Cassidy was dismissible, guys wouldn't have cared less. Oh, so, you know, the girls like David, who cares? And, you know, I like Mud, I like Sweet, I like Alice Cooper, I like whoever, right? But guys actually had to hate David Cassidy. Such was his impact. They had to have an emotional reaction that was a counterpoint to what the girls' reaction was. That says something about his impact. Yes. And when, yes. when, when David died, I mean, we, I think we all feared that it was going to happen. But sadly, you know, and again, you know, Australia and timing and stuff for us here it was the middle of the day and I was at work and I had to uh, travel from one office to another uh, to go to a meeting and, and the news came over and I just I wanted to weep I really did want to weep in that moment and I had to hold myself together and I had to sit through this excruciating meeting that I couldn't have cared less about but like you I think when I when I got home and and then of course it was all over the news and again can I just say that's something of his impact too like how forgotten, forgotten in inverted commas, was he really? It made headline news here, headline news around the world, right? Mm. And the reaction, as you say, in the Twitter sphere and all of that from celebrities and fans alike. But yes, as always, I went to his music for solace and just grateful that I could, you know, that there are so many great songs that you can just play and just go into that space you go into when you're, you know, having your private experience of David Cassidy and, and his music, just, just, yeah, great solace. There was a very moving testimony from Christopher Jones, who lives in Fort Lauderdale in the United States. In my book, Cherish, David Cassidy, A Legacy of Love, Christopher wrote a very moving tribute, where he said, life can be utterly devastating to those programmed with giving hearts. He lived quite close to David during his final days, felt a special empathy for him because he was someone who he could relate to. 
and on a personal level there were many parallels. In his written tribute he admitted for the first time that when David died he broke down in private, feeling he had lost the best friend he had never met. These are the thoughts he shared in our episode from last November. My name is Christopher Jones. Today is November the 21st, 2020. 2020, as we all would note, not the most favorable of years for a long list of reasons. I'm here in the United States. This is also three years from the passing of David Cassidy in 2017. Also my birthday. My birthday uh, in passing on my birthday. Um, real double whammy for me. I was having not such a good day and um, him being so local to me I always felt I'd have an opportunity to meet him here in Fort Lauderdale and uh, had opportunities um, maybe uh, I regretted my, that afterwards but not making the most of those opportunities winks and nods we shared some of the same causes some of the same circles uh, at a few events was Grand Marshal for some of our yacht parades during Christmas time and some other events here in town. He had some some times that weren't so good. He made the news for some uh, troubling events here and there. Um, I always thought he was a misunderstood person and certainly he had some issues down the road there that uh, tended to undermine who he otherwise was inside. I regretted seeing his home on the market I often thought that should have been made into some sort of tribute or a museum of sorts. But maybe they felt the family that was not the place to do it or not the location and maybe other places to do that. But uh, nevertheless, it's something some of us have kept in mind. Maybe there's still, uh, still a way to make that happen. I had some uh, events in my life uh, from early on all the way through, actually, but where... He was a, an inspiration for me, as I noted in some of the passages that I have in uh, Louise's uh, very fine book. I grew up fatherless most of the time. Uh, in other words, he wasn't in my life. I was the oldest of four, moved around a lot, had to grow up very fast, matured fast. You know, in those days, in those circumstances, you look for mentors. You look for people you can either mimic or model yourself after, people that are uh, both charming and endearing. Yet, uh, you know, maintaining their character and offering you a uh, directive, if you will, of how you can uh, model your life. And, uh, well, I wore my hair like his, quite ironically ended up looking like his. Uh, my nickname in uh, those days was Keith, after the Partridge family character. And uh, I took to playing guitar, and even when uh, things were not always ideal for him, he was always managed to... You know, pick himself back up and put himself back in the limelight. Even though he was highly regarded for his role with uh, the TV series and his solo career thereafter, um, he wanted to do more. He wanted to be seen as a serious musician. He, he aspired to be seen in those regards because he was. He was a very talented singer and a very good guitar player. His, uh, his voice and his sound, uh, I, he, he could have formed supergroups. Even at the very end, when things weren't good, he managed to pick up the pieces a little bit so that down the stretch he was uh, someone more manageable and more um, more uh, appetizing for more to interact with. He even had some concerts uh, and put on some shows late in his, uh, late in his life there. Um, the hospital where he died, the general area, I, I pass by it frequently. And uh, each time I think of him, it's... Uh, 
it's funny how that has become mentally memorialized um, for that location. And again, I hold a lot of regrets for not taking advantage of those opportunities. He he cared for animals. He cared for the downtrodden. He uh, he had a big heart, bigger than many might have known. And um, even though that wasn't always able to be showcased, uh, those close to him knew that. And uh, certainly in town, he tried to make a, an effort for that. And um, again, very sorry to see him go. And, and I, I guess it's a normal, normal human reaction we all have. We say, well, geez, if we could have only met him, maybe we could have made a difference. Well, you know, I think for some of the causes that we shared and some of the things that we were about, um, I think maybe I could have hit it off with him had I had a chance to meet him. But in those days, he was a private by design. Um, and sometimes he certainly wasn't as private as he'd like to have been. But um, a big inspiration for me and um, appears for many people around the world. In my situation, it wasn't like uh, a lot of women that were starstruck by him or anything. It was actually his, uh, his talent, his, uh, his character, and uh, his causes, the things that were important to him that really were manifest uh, to me. And, um, you know, I, I think we really lost something when we lost him. It's too bad uh, he isn't still with us. Um, I really think uh, he would have had far more to give. Uh, he really could have made a, a real splash later in his life.